Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 216. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Taylor Biaggi. Taylor, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you. How are you? I am also doing well. You know what? This is actually the first episode that I've recorded after the holidays. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So it's been about, I mean, the listeners don't know this because we release one every week, but it's been about two or so months since I've actually recorded anything. I queued up a whole bunch of stuff before I went so I could take off for the holiday season. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, (laughs) but I am (laughs) back and I'm ready to go. And man, I'm happy to have you. Uh, You were introduced, I believe, by our mutual friend Meg, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So Meg, for for those who are longtime listeners, I'm talking about Meg He. She's been on the podcast and has done some premium content with us in the past, but she mentioned that you would be a fantastic guest to talk to. I know why, and Meg knows why, but just in case people out there aren't familiar with you, why don't you go ahead and give yourself a quick introduction? Sure. So I own an academy here in Chicago. I've had it for a year and a half now, and I've been coaching for about four years and training for for nearly 15. I've competed. You know, I'm a Pan American champion, so I have all the experience of being a competitor and training myself. But now I'm just really focused and motivated by coaching. So I would love to explore this. What exactly was the the switch that flipped for you? Because I hear a lot of people talk about this, you know, they get into this and they go through that competitive phase, but then they develop a passion for coaching. And yeah, let's explore that. What, what happened? What was the switch that flipped where you decided that this was what you wanted to do? Yeah. So it's actually really funny. I consider it like a funny story just because I actually quit jujitsu altogether in 2017, just because like at that point in time I had won, you know, done well in uh, ish in tournaments and everything, but it's not it's not exactly a way to make a living. At least it wasn't at that time. And especially for women, there's just so few opportunities to like make an actual living just being a competitor. So I took a break or quit. I knew it was always like a break from jujitsu, but I wanted to turn my attention on like what else to do with my life because since graduating college, that was the only thing I did was jujitsu. Came around full circle to being offered a job at like a UFC gym in Chicago. And I actually was like, I don't really do jujitsu anymore. I've never taught jujitsu before, but sure, I'll help you guys out. And like, sound doesn't sound like a bad way to earn a little extra money, you know? And then my very first day ever of teaching, I was like, I'm an idiot. This is like exactly what I want to do with my life. <laughs> like, I love jujitsu. I love helping people. And like, I just was just so obvious to me that like, now I, I wanted to coach and run business, making money, helping people with jujitsu. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for a lot of people, they discover that joy too. I remember, you know, as a parent too, you also experienced this as well. I remember when I, you know, we had my daughter, your life very much changes and mm-hmm. it, it's not so much about just your own accomplishment anymore, but you get so much pride out of watching someone else who's under your study grow and and develop. And as you get older, that in itself becomes more rewarding than your individual accomplishments. Absolutely. And a very symbiotic relationship as well. Like I feel like the more you teach, the more you learn, the more you give, the more you receive like type thing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, I feel like that's kind of inherent in martial arts. Like, you know, like you, you teach others, like it's how you share jujitsu, you spread it and stuff. And like, yeah, I'm very, very motivated by helping others. Yeah. So for me, I, I definitely have got to that point too, where I discovered the joy of coaching because when you're, you know, you're focused on individual achievement, ultimately you're only benefiting one person, but there's a joy that comes out of getting up in front of a room of 30 people and giving them knowledge and giving them an outlet to improve their quality of life, right? And no longer are you bound by your own accomplishments. You can now create a legacy of other people who who learn under you and grow under you. And that's such a rewarding feeling. And and especially like for me, like I was never naturally good at jujitsu or sports. Like it, I was the type that took me a really long time. So I think I have a special empathy for people who it doesn't come naturally to. And I really like helping people discover what they can achieve over hard work. And, you know, so that's, it's really rewarding to me to help like the unexpected jujitsu, like athlete or uh, hobbyist. Yeah. Yeah. That to me has been one of the big breakthroughs for jujitsu. I mean, I also, I am not an, an athlete. I'm not a sports guy. It's actually a miracle that I'm even remotely competent at jujitsu, if, if I can be called that. And I think that that's a, a great argument for jujitsu. One of the things that that I love about jujitsu is it does fulfill the marketing promise where someone who is a total non-athlete can be competitive in there and can defend themselves against someone who's much bigger and stronger. And I think once most people experience that, even non-athletes who never had interest in doing sports in their lives, they discover this outlet. And that's why I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be that guy who says jujitsu is for everyone, but I do think that everyone should at least try it once just to see if it unlocks something in them that they yes. didn't know was there. And I think I mentioned this to you when we were messaging earlier, but another thing I'm really like proud of, and that really makes me feel fulfilled in my like mission, if you will, is the fact that I have 40% females in my school. So that it means a lot to me because that's very drastically different than the other schools in the area. And like coming up, I was always the only woman I felt like, you know, always training. So I just love that. Like I can make an environment that is not intimid, not too intimidating for women to come and learn and get to train with other women. Cause like it is, it is nice to be able to have someone your gender to play with sometimes, you know, instead of just like always, the self-defense approach of like, you should be able to fight big, strong men every day, all day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think we, we fail to understand that you have to work up to it, right? I mean, yes, if you want to be competitive against bigger, stronger people, of course you do need to train against bigger, stronger people, but that doesn't mean you want to throw someone into that situation in day one. You got to work up to it. And that is a mistake that I think a lot of gym owners make is they will just take their their smaller people and throw them in the shark pit with these giant monsters. And then- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I yeah. absolutely agree. There's something that stuck out for me that from one of the Dan and her diaries books that he said like 
he references it like a cub, like you have a baby cub and why would you put it into war? It plays with other baby cubs at first, like to learn how to fight. You don't just like throw it into an intense life or death situation. You have to foster its development. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But hey, now on that note, that's a great segue into the topic that we wanted to discuss here. What you had proposed was talking about learning for coaches and instructors. And I love this topic because everyone in jujitsu always talks about the best and the optimal ways for athletes to learn and for hobbyists and just casual people to learn, right? And there's tons of of established science on this that we've talked about on the podcast. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of tools that you can use if you want to further yourself as a grappler. You know, you talked about Danaher, tons of content out there that people can consult. But when it comes to being a coach, there's really not that much out there, right? I mean, there's no good playbook that I'm aware of for how a coach can learn to be a better coach. And so I'd love to turn that over to you and get your thoughts on how you develop that skill set. Yeah, so that whole topic has become a great interest to me. Again, it's it's sort of like an expansion of my whole motivation to help others, right? Like it started with me just wanting to coach my students myself. And then as my students, my team grew, I started to realize like I need to foster future instructors and like, and help them develop their teaching skills and like make sure also that they're helping me service my students. Like, because I research myself like thoroughly for my lessons and, you know, cause ever since I started teaching and thought and had other people's training in my hands, I'm like, I really want to do a good job and do research and put together lessons and stuff. So basically I trained some of my students as it became year three for them, year four for them. I started to, kind of prepare them to teach and like get them to start teaching. And since I started coaching them like in the first place, I had instilled a lot of my own, like the fact that they should be studying, the sources that I want them to study from, the way I want them to approach learning themselves and teaching. I've encouraged teaching from a very early stage too, as long as people are teaching what they know they've learned from me or from research. And then, so to this point, fast forward to now, I have coaches that I can, so let's say for this, for example, for this month, I have a coach that has put together a body lock passing lesson that like, I required them to research it. I required them to include like setups and then like explaining the advantageous position from there. And then the dilemmas from there, like I have specific ways I want them to present the information and to run the class, but I don't myself I didn't myself research it. like So it's like, now I can work on the next month's lesson plan while this student is teaching something that I would love my students to learn, if that makes sense. And then I'm also learning from them now. And I kind of put it in a rotation. So like, I have a student who he favors half guard, right? So, and he's a purple belt. And so I encouraged him to like study sources that I, I selected (laughs) and present to me like his idea of what the most important information from his research is and I help him put it into a lesson and I supervise it and now I have like an expert on half guard and a good thing about that for them too on the business side is like they have a brand and like something they help my students with as a specialty so people come to them for privates that person for half guard specifically or whatever other things I've assigned him that he's taught a guest, like kind of like guest teach style. I actually attend the classes as well because then I learn from what they've learned. And I can, the classes that I teach, the rest, like, because those people would only teach nighttime, 5.30, my main class. I teach the morning classes and everything. I teach the same lesson that I learned from them for that month. 
so that everything's just always like cohesive and consistent. And we're all just learning together like the same systems. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So now I have like a team of coaches that we work together. So I love that idea of creating almost like a pipeline here where you've got other coaches that you assign out work to them. And it sounds like you kind of stagger it so that everyone's always developing their own thing. And there's always other stuff for you to learn. And it's not just a two-way relationship too. And that's the genius here, right? You're not just telling your coaches and your students what to do, but you're also empowering them to become coaches themselves and to feed that information back up to you. And that's just such an important approach if you want to grow the quality of the people in your room. Absolutely. And it also, it does a wonders for our culture too, because like I noticed that a lot of the vibes at gyms I've trained at would be like the upper belts don't really mess with the white belts. Like they do their own problem solving together and whatnot and their own training together. But maybe the white belts would be lucky if they get a little bit of their attention. Whereas my academy, because of the way I've invested in it from the very beginning, everybody is thrilled to teach and help. And everybody sees it as like a privilege and everybody wants to contribute. But the standard is very high. Again, like I said, for the information, that's really important to me because I don't want people studying from like all different sources, from all different instructors. I want us to study one system together, if that makes sense. So what's the the thought process behind there? Because I think I get where you're coming from. You know, you don't want people drifting off onto too many tangents. And of course, you want to make it easy for you as the instructor to validate the quality of the information that people are studying. But Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Walk me through exactly how that looks. So, you know, maybe you've got a student in your room who, let's say they're a blue belt and, you know, they want to learn something and you want to empower them to become the domain expert. How exactly does that work and how do you parcel out what they should study? So full disclosure, like I'm like a Danaher freak. Like, I don't know if if that's clear, but like I basically, so I, I figured out why. So the reason why, the number one reason I could say I love that specific Danaher and his students and like a very select few group of people is because the the method is I'm going to forget the exact word but it's like it'll start with the most basic fundamental truth right of anatomy or of physics like uh, the most basic example is like so if your two feet are in one line your base is only as wide as your toes to your heels right like that's not arguable and then it'll the technique and everything builds from there so it's like because of this truth like And because of this truth, you can't deny it, right? So to me, that is much more that sort of approach that Danaher has and that like the way that they teach and many more examples of how they teach their systems and stuff is just superior to this is a technique I like and this is how to do it, you know? So there's two different types of, those are two different types of like styles, I guess, of teaching. And I just strongly prefer (laughs) Danaher's and then because his systems are so are so complex and intricate and take so much study and just again there's just so much information it's like why not all study the same system so that we are just on the same page and one more thing about the Danher diaries like the very 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 first quote that is in the book is talks about how powerful it is for many hard-working people to be unified in their goal and their direction And I firmly believe that like when I started coaching and I had a lot of peers around me that were my level and everybody studied a different instructor and everybody had a different style they were interested in, it sort of seemed like being pulled in so many different directions. You know what I mean? And so for me and for my students, it just works best to stick with like one source. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had Andrew Wiltsey on our on one of our premium episodes, actually, and he talked about how he drills and how he interacts with his training partners. And one of the things he said was jujitsu is ultimately an individual sport, but to build an athlete, it takes a team. And I think the mistake a lot of coaches make is they basically just leave everyone to their own devices, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. There's a fine line between giving your students autonomy and and still like I'm the coach and like I have a certain standard and I've created time and time again. Like, so two of my students in my four years of training have won the pans and I'm very proud of that. And I really do take a lot of time research and I've compared many different sources too. Like, it's not like I've always been exclusively obsessed with like the sources that I am now, but over time I've discovered like they're just the best, you know, and they make people better faster, just like his series is called. So yeah, that's why I'm selective like that. And I do actually require my coaches to follow my sources. They're not really allowed to teach something else. Yeah, that that kind of quality (laughs) control, it does become important. The challenge that I see at, at the majority of gyms is when it gets to the point where the instructor can no longer teach every class. What they normally do is they'll take their second in command. So usually their their highest ranked student and they'll say, hey, do you want a job? And then that person will presumably say yes. And then they will say, okay, teach whatever you want. So then what you're going to wind up with is some brown belt who just kind of comes in and shows technique of the day or whatever came to his mind or her mind first and foremost, the most obvious thing, but it's not really a cohesive system and it's not really aligned with what the other coaches are teaching. And this can be a very bewildering experience if you're a student. I mean, I remember this, you know, you're going in as a student and your main instructor is teaching, you know, X guard this week, and then you're just getting the hang of it. And then you go in the next day and the other person's in charge and they're teaching some crazy worm guard thing that is completely unrelated. They've got a different style. It's just not cohesive. And I think instructors sometimes forget how hard it is for beginners to absorb information. You need a plan that's much more consistent. And if the people don't have that plan and they don't see, they don't understand how all of the pieces fit together, what winds up happening is people just don't retain and they don't deploy that information in live environments. And even even just something as simple as the names, like I get my students tease me because I'm like, I don't want to hear like five different names for the one grip. Like when my student's teaching and he's like, he calls it one grip one day and someone else calls it one grip. And I'm like, you realize these white belts are like, wait, what? Why is there? They assume you're talking about different things. It's really better to simplify and boil things down and to be just as simple as possible, even with terms. Like I can't stand renaming like people coming out with new names for everything and stuff like that. So this is something I wish people in jujitsu would do more often, which is before they decide to name something that they don't know the name for, just ask around and see if there's already a name for it. Yeah, right. Let's not add confusion by creating a name if there's already a settled name. I mean, I don't know about you, but it, it kills me that you've got people talking about like the saddle yep. versus the 411 versus the honey hole. I was just going to say like, I require the certain terms at my school and I'll correct people. Like, so when I first started studying leg locks, I realized that everything boils down to a cross Ashi or a straight Ashi and everything else is just a different configurations or very of your legs or variations of that. And when I learned that it allowed me to teach leg locks so much easier and I use like whiteboards and things like that. But yeah, so I do require my coaches to be on the same page with me about that. Like I do not want them in there talking. I don't want to hear the word saddle in my gym <laughs> <laughs> just because like 
trust me, like with like the students get so confused. There's already a million moves as there is. Like, yeah. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu already has a preposterous number of moves <laughs> exactly. and techniques. And, and they evolve so quickly too, right? I mean, I, you know, you talked about how you walked away from the sport. I did the same thing actually around the same time as you. And I came back and everything was different. Like the meta had completely evolved, new techniques I'd never seen before. It's overwhelming for a black belt for crying out loud. So you got to think about like, what's the perspective going to be if you're just a, a regular student who's just trying to learn at a regular pace? Yep. And so, and so for me, like the whole thing with the instructors was just not only to make an extension of me so that there's like consistency and there's easier for the students, but yeah, for me to also learn from the other instructors and for us to all be able to work together, like is just so awesome. And every, and I get, and like as a black belt, like I study so much and like, I love that my instructors are also doing that. Like, it's not like they get a purple or a brown belt and they stop learning. Like they know that they have even more to learn, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you already brought up Danaher. Danaher is a great resource for anyone who's looking to systemize their jujitsu knowledge. I mean, that is ultimately what he's probably most famous for, right? Is bringing systems thinking, a concept that you use in many, many other walks of life, bringing that to jujitsu and encouraging people to look for kind of, like you said earlier, the fundamental truths. And I always advocate, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I advocate repeatedly for instructors to really take the time to think that way and to present that kind of information to students rather than just drowning them in technical minutia that they're never going to remember. So it sounds like part of what you guys do is not only do you take these concepts from Danaher and from other instructors, but it sounds like you're also developing and organizing systems yourself. And I'd love to learn more about that process and how you do it. So, and you were talking about like regarding like the leg lock stuff I was talking about or what specifically? Yeah, it sounds like you got some oversight going on where you're kind of directing your coaches in terms of what domains they should study and you're validating and making sure that there's consistency across the board. I'd just love to explore that thought process a bit more. So it all starts with me thinking of what my students need the most. And usually because my academy is so new, it's like, it's more like escapes and retention and stuff. And then I kind of actually go based on so it's like the next level up from coaching is coaching instructors. That's the way I see it. And there was I was listening to one of your podcasts recently about like the mirroring style of coaching versus like the side guide. And that's like really important in the fact that like it should be client centric, like you should be teaching to help people. But so with the coaches, I look at their strengths, the way they work, what interests them, where I see them being useful in the rotation of teaching. So like I said, so for example, one of my students, he showed a really early interest in leg locks, right? Because he's a young man and he's very athletic and he was just all up on the meta, like watching every match and loving to emulate the best guys and everything. So I was like, okay, go ahead. Like go crazy on studying like the leg lock stuff, you know? And that was a few years ago. And now he literally like, he corrects me sometimes. And so like, So then I would assign him like, okay, I want, since you're so interested in leg locks and since you want to teach and stuff and you're going to start teaching, I want you to think about how can we teach the brand new people, you know, basic ashi, basic off balances, basic entrances and basic submissions. And I kind of tell him like what I want the first lesson to look like and what I think would be important based on what I know. But then I want him to dig deeper and then he'll come to me like I was thinking about showing them this and that. And then I'll say, okay, here's how I want the class to look. And I'll kind of design it because I also have ways that I like to structure things. Cause like we talked about full resistance and sparring 
is not, you know, most, I feel like a lot of people might just teach a technique and then you go to full sparring, but I have a lot of like intermediary challenges and drills to like retain the information and build up to that. So I kind of help the student design that. And then I'm present and normally I'm present at the class at first until I feel like their lesson is solid and Maybe sometimes I'll, I won't often interject, but sometimes I'll be like, hey, let's, um, let's have them keep doing this one before you move on to the next, because it doesn't seem like everyone's quite ready yet, you know, stuff like that. Well, let's expand on that because I love that bit. And this is where coaches trip up all the time is they will show a technique, but they won't think about, are my students actually retaining this, right? They will often show the technique once and then move on. Or maybe if they want to be really spicy, they'll say, we're going to work on this thing this week. And they'll basically just teach the same thing every day for the week. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. At least you get some repetition. But the coach at that level has not really taken the action to make sure that the student can apply it. The way that I liken it to is, you know, you remember back when you were in high school and you would study for a test. Basically, the idea is you're trying to memorize all of this info and keep it in your brain long enough to regurgitate it onto the test, hopefully pass, Mm -hmm. and then you forget all of that info and you never use it again. Right. And that's a very different skill set from applied knowledge where you're actually learning things in a way that you can apply it and use it as a skill. Mm-hmm. And I feel like many jujitsu coaches make a mistake here because they teach things in the testing method where they will basically show people a technique, expect them to memorize it. And then, then inevitably what happens is the students cannot pull it off in a live role or they never get the chance to. And so the knowledge just falls out of their head and they just regress Absolutely. back to what they were doing before. Exactly. Yep. No, exactly. So with me, it's like, first of all, again, it's culture of like the way we treat how we teach the class. Like we emphasize how important it is to set up, like I'm using the body lock, for example, like you can't just body lock your opponent. You need to set up, you need to get rid of their defenses, which is their hands and their head to expose it. So we'll have them work on the entry, a few different entries, and then we'll test it. We'll be like, okay, now, so the term designated winner, I heard it from another person Oh my gosh, of course I'm blanking on his name and he's like a friend of mine, but it's like head nod squad maybe, or his name's like Josh McKinney, Josh McKinney. He coined the term, or I heard him use the term on his Instagram, but it's like what I already do. So it's designated winner means the feeder is going to give increased resistance, then drilling and switch up the different looks, the different like between a few different resistances or types of resistance, but at a point that is just above the skill level of the person that's doing it. So that, you know, because what I saw with positionals a lot as the way we used to do them, like when I was training at other gyms, like, okay, go hold down that person in side control, even though we haven't done anything related to that recently. And the person's going to bridge out at a hundred (laughs) percent. And if you lose, you just go to the back of the line. In my case, I'm like, okay, for these several minutes, one person is going to attempt this. And the goal is that even under some more challenge and resistance, eventually they're able to like get it done. But from problem solving and like the feeder keeping them honest, like not giving it to them, like, and it's not predictable the way drilling is, where it's like step by step, you know, it's more like an intermediary. So just positionals that we call a designated winner. And then we do stay on one general topic for a month, starting with like, for example, the beginning part of the move, like everything usually you need to set up, right? So we'll start a lot of emphasis on that part and kind of gradually go through from the guard pass to controlling the pin 
to transitioning to more dominant. Like, so we've done body lock pass for this is the week number three. So right now we're working on the mount control from there because we went from the pass to the mount. And next we're going to do like the katagatame in the last week. But the students will have to do everything all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually an awesome concept, this bit about the designated winner. It's hilarious that you mentioned this because on the very last episode that we had, we were joined by uh, Jorgen Matsi, who is a sports psychologist and black belt out of Estonia. And one of the things that he talked about is when he is structuring his classes and getting his students to practice, he has collaborative win conditions, which is very much like what you're talking about. So the problem that a lot of coaches do is they will basically say, okay, we're working on, I don't know, close guard, you two spar and your objective is if you're the one on the bottom you're trying to sweep or submit if you're the one on the top you're trying to get up and pass and just keep going and reset and that sounds like a good idea but the problem with it is you're basically just getting your students to spar <laughs> you're, you're putting positional restrictions on it but they're still just sparring they're not there looking out for their partner to help them learn what they're doing is they're trying to win and it's competitive yeah and that's totally the wrong mentality so what he suggested is change the win conditions in the room so that it's only considered a win if certain conditions are met. So in this case, if the person on bottom, if their job is to try to get a sweep, the person on top might be there to apply progressive resistance like you talked about, but the round, quote unquote, the training session is only considered a win if the sweep actually happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the person on top, their job is not to just shut the person down and be an asshole and not let them get their game off. They only succeed if the other person actually succeeds. And I love that idea of thinking of drilling as a collaborative dance rather mm -hmm. than a fight. I think it's mm -hmm. so much more productive that way. Yeah. And it's like, I think of it a lot like a video game and like I put handicaps on the feeder, right? Like if we're doing close guard, I'll actually limit and it depends on the level of the student, the higher level student, the more variation and stimuli you can like give them. But if it's a brand new student, I'm like, okay, person on top, you may only be on two knees or one knee. You know what I mean? You can't stand up because otherwise everybody just stands up right away and blasts out. And I'm like, well, this person's supposed to be achieving some off balancing and like getting their game going, grip fighting. Like we need to focus on that and see if we can improve on that before we throw in all these other resistance like that was kind of out of context. Yeah. And that's also a big part of, you know, when you're the, the senior person in the role to help the junior person in the role, you often want to figure out what are the things you can give them to help them be more successful. And I, I know that a lot of black belts and brown belts hate doing this because they're increasing the likelihood that they're going to lose to a lower belt, but that's totally the wrong mentality, yes, right? Exactly. And I yeah. love, I'm so, you're making me feel so grateful. Cause like, I don't know how I pulled this off, but like I have students literally telling me like, oh, I want to be put in the bottom of pins or like I want to be put in this submission because I want to improve. And I'm just like, okay, something I'm doing is working because like everybody has the, that growth mindset versus like oh, the competitive, like if you lose, you fail. It's like you just always are learning and problem solving and getting better. And I'm just really happy that that's what's happened, what's came of it. Yeah, yeah. It, it is very important to kind of reframe your your thinking in that way. The way that I like to think of it now, I mean, no grappler is consistently good at everything across the board, right? Mm -hmm. You might have a black belt, but that doesn't mean you're a black belt in everything. Everyone has specialties, strengths, and weaknesses. And so what I like to try to think of is I try to assess 
you know, if I were a video game character and I had skill points in all of these different skills of mine, you know, what, what skills am I really mm-hmm. good at? Maybe I'm a black belt at arm bars, but maybe I'm realistically only a purple belt at triangle chokes, right? So what I like to do is when I'm sparring with someone more junior, I try to remove the techniques that I'm above their level. So if I'm in there with a purple belt, if, if I feel like I'm a brown or a black belt at any particular technique, I might choose to remove that technique from my game for that role so that I can meet the person at their own level and we can both both get benefit out of the session. Yes, that's a, that's the best way for everybody to make the most of it and improve. It's awesome. <laughs> and it makes like upper belts like embrace and being totally cool with working with lower belts, which I think is just so important. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question for you that I have. You know, part of being the head coach and helping other coaches learn to be better coaches is helping them develop that humility and and control that ego and getting to the point where, yeah, you might, I mean, you might go in there and because you're handicapping yourself, you know, you might get swept by a white belt in front of everyone. And a lot of people just instinctively have a hard time dealing with that problem. I'd love to know how you help coaches get around that mental block and learn to be beginners again. Yeah. Again, it's like, it helps that I've trained these people since they started jujitsu and I've treated them that way. And I've always like just based on being willing to admit your weaknesses and when you're wrong because you are always learning. So it's just like I put that mindset in them and treated them that way since they were white belts and now they're purples and browns. And it's again, it's just like a big part of the culture of the gym that everyone genuinely, it's just a not an ego type of gym. And like we also doubled down on that for business reasons because we stand out in the community in that way. And we wanted to offer that for people that were like intimidated by other gyms, you know? So it just comes from the top down, I think. Yeah, just their mentality and their training has always been like that. So now that they're teaching, they're kind of, they're modeling me and they're just, it's another extension of their, already their progress as a jujitsu athlete. And like, it's translating into their teaching as well. And yeah, they take pride in it. And they set examples now for the newer students and stuff. So it's just, it's really great. I'm really, really happy. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Now, hey, I'd love to know, you know, we've talked a lot about developing technical skill at this point. And when you're talking about how you coach your students, that's the main thing they come to you for, right? Is they want to learn the techniques. When you're talking about coaching, there's skills that you want your coaches to develop that go beyond just the technical aspects of jujitsu, right? There are interpersonal skills, business skills, sports psychology, educational psychology. And I'd love to know how you coach that into your students, because that is a can of worms that most coaches are not, they're not ready to to learn that, right? When they step into that role, they think, well, if I'm good at jujitsu, that's good enough. But then it becomes very glaringly obvious right away that they have these deficiencies in these other teaching oriented skill sets. Absolutely. So basically, Basically, just as these things come up, I'm a part of their journey, you know, like just like I'm a part of my student's journey. Like, so for example, if I noticed one of the coaches was doing that thing, again, referencing like one of the podcasts I was listening to of of yours with like someone named Justin, I think. Justin Suwa. It stood out to me because he was talking about mirroring, which is like coaching to hear yourself talk almost, you know what I mean? Like coaching for yourself, like for your own pride of what you know or something like that versus literally caring so much about everybody in the room benefiting and getting a lot out of it and doing it for them. So sometimes if I hear a coach kind of drone on too much or use too much terminology, I'm like, you're not, you're not thinking as well as you could about 
the room and the people like make remember we need it very simple very direct not too much information you taught too many techniques like next time we're only going to do these two and then incorporate more games instead like more ways to challenge it and test it so I'll kind of coach them through that way as far as the so another thing that came out from that podcast was like I think it was like psychotherapy you were saying like sometimes coaching is a form of psychotherapy because like you are there's a lot of psychology to it right you don't want to like put someone down or like discourage them or always constantly say no. You want to have a certain attitude when you're coaching them that's encouraging and like rewards when they're getting it right and like is molded to their individual individuality as a person because everybody learns differently. So for that, I think that again is just kind of modeled. But if I notice, I notice any little bit of condescending tone, which I don't don't often, but like, you know, or something or something was said, something was answered to like dismissively, which again doesn't really happen often. I'll point something like that out. I'll be like, maybe next time. Like, especially my my brown belt, like sometimes he can be very stern and sometimes which is totally fine. But like sometimes I'm like, hey, remember, like, remember to always because at the certain point that's that mirroring thing again. I feel like if you're too stern as a coach you're too dismissive and shutting out that person that you're teaching. And it's like a 50-50 thing. Like the student matters, you know, in the equation and how they're feeling matters. <laughs> so basically I supervise and I give feedback to them. And I kind of always there as well. Like I do attend the classes for now as they're learning and then getting better and stuff. And I'll kind of like guide them. I'll come up to them and be like, and give them like, okay, like that's it. Don't show anything else or whatever. Or like, hey, let's t- do positionals now or something like that. Yeah. It makes, makes a ton of sense. Now, something I would love to, to dig into here, and this is a very difficult question, but I think it's an important one. One of the things about being a coach is you're going to see some shit. Like you're going to get looped into situations that you never expected you would, right? People get into jujitsu coaching because they want to teach jujitsu, but you're going to wind up getting pulled in a lot of directions that you're not prepared for. I mean, as an example, my instructor, I remember a situation where we're out in an event and there was a domestic violence situation between two of our students at the gym oh, wow. and and he had to drop everything and basically intervene in this couple's relationship. Yeah. And, you know, you, you got to make some on the spot decisions about what's going to happen here. Who's allowed to train at the gym anymore. Like these are things that are not part of the playbook and not what you expect when you you get into coaching. I've also seen situations where, you know, my coach just got dragged into a situation where two people outside the building, not not even in class, but we're trying to start a fight in the parking lot, right? Not not even necessarily related to the jujitsu gym, but you've got to now use your skill set to get involved and protect your students. And of course you don't want to get into a fight. So you want to de-escalate instead of actually using your jujitsu. That's always the last resort. So but these are all things that don't get taught when you you decide you want to be a coach. Oh yeah. And that doesn't even get into like sexual predators and harassment and the kinds of things that we know are prevalent in jujitsu. So I would love to pick your brain here about what as the head coach you can do to prepare the people under you for experiencing and dealing with these problems. So that's a really good question. And actually, I mean, so I've had my academy for a year and a half and I've coached for four years. There has definitely been interpersonal drama, different weird things happening, like someone hearing a coach say something that really wasn't inappropriate, but still came to me complaining that it is. And I'm like confused because it, it's just like all sorts of things. So basically you cannot prepare anyone for some of the wild things that happen that you would never expect. Like it just has to be dealt with as it comes up. Like I've had people complain about something, something with instructors that like, 
like I said, really just didn't make sense. Like somebody saying it was inappropriate how he went behind the other person. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, that was the position we were learning. Like he went up behind and grabbed his Uki by the waist. And I think like laughed or something before he went on to teach and that offended her. Mm-hmm. Like little things like you would never think would be <laughs> like a problem have come up as a problem from time to time. And that instructor was really upset. And like, we talked about it and just talked about how we just always need to be extra careful with everything and just kind of have these learning experiences as they come up. Because like myself, I can't say that I was been prepared for all the different things that have come up. You know, it's always been like a new level of like, kind of like tolerance for dealing with interpersonal conflict, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think the, I think the best thing that you can do because you're right. You can never foresee every crazy situation that's going to happen at your gym, right? Stuff happens. But what you can maybe do is you can set the culture and the expectations beforehand, right? Establish the code of conduct so your coaches know what's acceptable and what's not. But I think also there's an argument to be made that we should, as jujitsu coaches, prepare our students better so they know what they're getting into. Because I, I can actually understand that person's feedback, right? If you don't know anything about jujitsu and you just show up to a class because you want to learn self-defense and the instructor comes up and grabs you from behind... I can understand a layperson thinking that's very uncomfortable. I recall one of the first sessions that I ever did where I was doing a private for people way back in the day. And it was was two women who were trying jujitsu for the first time. And I was trying to instruct them on what exactly the sport is and what they're supposed to do. And I remember thinking like, you know what, what I'm asking them to do if you don't know jujitsu it sounds absolutely absurd, right? It sounds like some weird deviant behavior. You know, I want you to sit on top of the other person on the ground. I, I want you to wrap your legs around this person and hug them. Like it, if you don't know what's happening, it can come across the wrong way. And I sort of have started to feel over the years, as I talk to more coaches who have really succeeded at this, that setting the table and, and managing expectations for people before they come in and before they get on the mats is a really good practice, right? Like letting them know this is, this is a very close contact sport, right? You're, you're going to have people sitting on top of you trying to compress your windpipe. You are going to potentially be in there. Could be triggered. Yes, yes, exactly. And we have to recall that like a lot of people don't get into jujitsu because they watched the UFC and they fell in love with it. Some people, they don't know anything about it. All they know is their brother-in-law told them that jujitsu is the best self-defense art. So they showed up and they were surprised that someone tried to rip their arm off on day one. Yeah. I feel like as coaches setting the table, both for our instructors and our students can solve so many of those problems before they happen. Totally. And especially with the fact that my, I attract a lot of women and people that are maybe not the traditional type that would walk into a jiu-jitsu gym, you know? I kind of have the niche of, like, the fact that I'm a woman and they assume I'm safer and everything. But, yeah, but just the fact that we attract a lot of women, a lot of people that might be have been, been there because they're, they want to gain confidence and or self-defense because they're scared or, or whatever. It's, like, not – it's a especially sensitive group of people compared to, like, maybe the bros – that might go to like the, be attracted to the gyms where they like spar hard and it's male dominant and stuff. Like it's extra important for my my gym. I even think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that for the bros, there's a different approach as well, right? If someone gets into this because they want to be UFC champion and that's why they're taking jujitsu classes, you still have to, as the coach, manage their expectations, but just in a very different way, right? You need to. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, it's less than about their comfort and more about the safety of the other people and whether these people understand how to be safe partners. So yeah, managing those expectations beforehand is always a very challenging thing to do. But uh, the more I train, the more I think that that is one of the key functions of the coach. Absolutely. And one last like thing about the coaching that, I, that we haven't talked about is, or as much as like the business side. So like this isn't there for me yet because I myself, like I've ran a gym, right? But I haven't really ran like a super successful just coaching business alone. But I want that to be an option for like some of my, my instructors, like people who want to make a living teaching. And I feel like it's the era to, to do so. Like access to information online has really blown up and offers a lot of more opportunity. And then just entrepreneurship in general, like something I've learned is that limiting beliefs are often the thing that stops people from doing things they actually want to do and stuff. So I like to like encourage my students to like, I like to brand them. Like I like to film them when they teach and share it and encourage my students to take privates from people that are experts in whatever it is. And I was saying, I feel like you as having done your podcast and done any other, like your businesses and whatnot, like you understand like how much it is just believing in yourself kind of and understanding you can like you can make something happen out of nothing and I want like I want to foster my students to like if they want teaching careers I want to help them with that or if they want to have a gym one day I want to help them with that yeah that, that's a brilliant point you're basically talking about career development in a lot of way for your coaches and that's a mistake that I think a lot of people in jiu-jitsu make which is where the coach tries to basically own and control the people underneath them. But look, you you ultimately want to empower these people mm-hmm. to go off and do their own thing too. Exactly. I want it to be as mutually beneficial and win-win as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's always good advice. Now, hey, one more thing I want to ask you about here. To what extent do you have to play the gatekeeper? You know, you talked about how coaches will come to you with their ideas about what they want to teach, but sometimes those ideas might not be very good, right? What if some coach comes in and they say, hey, I want to have my students work on only buggy chokes for the next six <laughs> months, right? There's always going to be bad ideas. And I, I'd love to know how you, how you kind of delicately handle that and also how you assess whether an idea is good and is worth introducing to the class or whether it's bad and you want to hold off on it. I would say not so delicately, actually. (laughs) Like at this point, if my student came in to say that, it would be very clearly a joke. And like, I feel like it has been a joke. I've been criticized for being like by my peers for being too narrow-minded about my sources. But like I've explained already why I do what I do. And so at this point, that's all nipped in the bud. Like there's been plenty of over the last four years, there's been plenty of that, you know, like my students coming to me with this idea or that idea. And some of the white belts and stuff like will still be like, so I shouldn't be just going on Instagram then and trying to pick. I'm like, no, no, there's better sources. Like not the Instagram's bad, but like they'll pick like something completely random and flashy sometimes, but I've nipped it in the bud for like, and that took a lot of work actually and persistence of just being really. So yeah, I, I don't do it so delicately. I'm like, no. like no you're not doing like you can teach like I just have this way of going with their interests and their autonomy but guided funneled into the sources I want them to use yeah yeah that makes sense and I think the thing a lot of people need to understand is it's not always about whether the information is good or bad, although that's definitely a part of it, but it's also about bandwidth. You know, there's so mm-hmm. much content out there that mm-hmm. we just don't have time to learn everything. And so sometimes you have to reject something, not because it's bad, but because we have a higher priority. We need to focus yep. on teaching right now. 
And I've had, I've like, I've gone through it with some coaches, like being like, oh, but I, I can teach so much more than just half guard because I had one student do it. I'm like, you're missing it though, because the reason I want you to teach it is not for you. It's for the students. <laughs> They're the ones that need half guard. So they need it and you know it. So you're going to teach it to them. Like I need that. And then next time I'll branch out for you. Like we can do something. We can talk about what you can do next. You know what I mean? But like you're kind of, you're here for what you're needed for. Like again, the client centric attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Someone on the podcast, I think it was Kabir Bath was talking about this and about how coaches tend to get bored of the techniques and want to move on way before the students do. And that's very much a curse of knowledge thing, right? Because if you're a coach, you know, if I talk about omoplatas to you, that's just another Wednesday, right? Like, I mean, these are techniques that you, you know, and you can do in your sleep. There's nothing exciting for you there. But if you think back to the perspective of being a white belt and how confusing mm-hmm. this stuff was and how long it took you to, to learn, you realize that like the coach has a very different perspective, something that to them is easy and fundamental might feel like an insurmountable challenge to the people in the room. And you always need to structure your class from the student's perspective and not the coach's. And there is one thing also I do to incentivize it. I just thought about, so for example, last month was seated guard play. Okay. So butterfly, butterfly sweeps actually specifically and dealing with defending the body lock. And I haven't nailed like the order of which, you know, this is kind of like a work in progress type thing going on, (laughs) but then I was like, I made it a challenge. I was like, I'm going to teach the students such a good butterfly guard and such a good forward shift out of the body lock that it's a challenge that like you can teach the students how to pass it better. So my next, cause the next month was my student teaching body locks. So I'm like, I kind of make it like a challenge. Like who's going to teach the triangle better than the triangle escape? <laughs> like, and like, I tell them like the mission is to get the students really good at it. And we'll all know that they're good at body lock passes because of coach Justin. Yeah. 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 That, that's awesome. And I love the idea of also making people domain experts inside your gym. That that's such a valuable thing, not just because it, you know, flushes out the strength of your team, but also because it gives people a sense of ownership and a sense of accomplishment and a sense of purpose, because they're the one who has a unique contribution to the team that's valuable. And that's such a good and important feeling for a coach to instill in the people under them. Yeah. And I don't want, and even though there's like, I want it to be like a healthy competition, like another thing I don't want and I've had to actually nip in the bud and talk to people about is competitive over who gets to teach what and when or who's getting private clients. And so I feel like by giving them assignments, I kind of help that because instead of being like, you're just coach Justin, you just teach whatever you want and whoever likes you likes you. You know what I mean? Instead of that, it's like, nope, this month we're with coach Justin. Next month I'm teaching. Next month, coach Spence, like I'm in charge of it. So it kind of like takes away their trying to like be competitive over which students are theirs type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. Well, Hey, I mean, that's a lot that we covered today, but before (laughs) we tie this one up, Taylor, I just wanted to turn it back to you. Is there anything important on this topic that you wanted to dig into, which we didn't have a chance to discuss? I honestly, I think we covered like everything pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, we covered so much and I'm pretty sure I hit everything I wanted to. Well, that's great news. Now, hey, honestly, after talking for an hour here, your gym sounds pretty awesome, but you haven't mentioned where it is and how people can train with you. So if people want to go to visit you in your gym and train there, or if they want to reach out to you and work with you or ask you questions online, how can they find you? Yeah. So I'm in, I'm located in Chicago, right in the city, in the heart of the city, just west of downtown. My academy's name is my name, Taylor Biagi Jiu-Jitsu. 
And we have a website with that name, Instagram with that name, email info at taylorbiagijujitsu.com. And yeah, anyone's always welcome welcome to come by and check it out. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. But you'll have to come by if you're ever in, in Chicago. <laughs> I would love to. I haven't been to Chicago in a long time, and that sounds like a fun trip. Now, do you do coaching online as well or just in person? So I absolutely want to. That's like my next goal. So yeah, I'm trying to get started with that. I've been obviously pretty focused on my gym itself the past year and a half and really wanted to invest as much time and energy into that. But I would like to like make my business a hybrid and be able to like help more people via the internet. So yeah, that's definitely a goal of mine but not quite there yet. (laughs) Well, hey, if anyone wants to jump the gun there, if they want to contact you, visit your gym or or maybe work with you, what I'll do is I'll put all of the links to your your gym, the website, the Instagram and everything in the show notes. So if anyone out there- Thank you so much. That's awesome. (laughs) No problem. So if anyone out there is listening and you want to contact Taylor, make it easy for you. Just pop open your podcast player, go to info or description or whatever it says and there should be some links you can just tap on to find her that'll make that easy additionally i'll also put a link in there to bjj mental models premium for those who don't know the reason why we can do this without ads is because we're supported by premium people so if you are happy that you don't have to listen to ads for dollar shave club and blue chew and stuff like that (laughs) you can thank the premium people who pay monthly subscriptions and you can become one of those people main reason you'd want to do so we've got a ton of content on there our full library of of educational jujitsu courseware is included in the subscription. I was just crunching the numbers. We launched 10 courses last year in 2022, including courses by Andrew Wiltsey, Rafael Lovato Jr., Claudia Duval, Marco Ciccarelli, John Thomas, a, a ton of them. So that's a crazy value for the, mm. the 20 bucks a month we charge. Wow. The first week is free. Do recommend everyone sign up and join. And also, this is a hot topic, I know, but one of the main reasons people would want to join is because if you're a member, you can also send us your video footage and we'll break it down and review it. And rest assured, it is not my dumbass doing the reviews. We've got an all-star stacked review team. We're in the process of onboarding a bunch more people. We actually just announced that uh, Brianna St. Marie is on our review team now. So if you want to have one of the best women in the world tell you why you suck at jujitsu, that's a great way to do it. So again, BJJ Mental Models Premium. The link is bjjmentalmodels.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Big thanks to everyone who supports us there. And big thanks to you, Taylor. I really do appreciate you coming by. This was a great one. Looking forward to starting 2023. And I think this was a great first recording this year to kick things off. Amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Great to chat. And thanks to everyone listening. Always appreciate the time. Really do appreciate it sincerely. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care.